0: The following message was recorded at Christ Church in Bartlett, Tennessee. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.ccbartlett.org. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, as we open your word, thank you so much. Thank you so much for who you are. Thank you. I I love the fact that we got to sing this morning, you're a good, good father. And it's who you are. You're a good, good father. And we're loved by you. And we know that. And so, God, as we open your word, please, good, good Father, speak to your children. Please give us understanding. We need you this morning. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, turn to Daniel chapter 5. We've been going through the first six chapters of Daniel. The, the series has been Daniel, Lessons from a Fellow Exile. And in chapter 5 today, we're going to talk about something that I, I went back and looked. And it looks like that I have preached uh, roughly about 200 sermons now. Uh, since I've been here, and that's, uh, that's quite a bit. So you have endured quite a bit, so God bless you. But as I thought about that, I- I've never, ever talked about this subject before, never. Um, and I think Daniel 5 brings us there. So it's a, Daniel 5 is, is not necessarily a, a an easy passage to preach. It's not necessarily a fun passage to preach. When you look at Daniel 5, it's literally a narrative of of God shutting a party down, okay? So let's look at that together. You ready? Daniel chapter 5. Look there in verse one. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousands. So from chapter four to chapter five, chapter four, Nebuchadnezzar was still in power. And so obviously things have changed, okay? So some people have come in and, and have uh, have replaced him. Multiple kings have come in since, since Nebuchadnezzar, since Belshazzar. Um, but We don't hear about them. But we hear about Belshazzar because what happens here is is an epic, crazy story. So what's happening here is he, he calls thousands of his lords together for a party. You ever been to a big party? No, you haven't, okay? Belshazzar threw a party, okay? Imagine, the biggest party you've been to, nothing compared to Belshazzar. This party was like, go down the street to Bellevue Baptist Church and fill that congregation with people and give every single person a beer. This is the party, okay? This is is exactly what it's like. It's a crazy, crazy thing going on. Um, And so, look at verse two. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, which is a really polite way of saying, he was drunk. Okay, he got a little tipsy there. So if you've ever, you know, if you ever have a little bit too much, just say, I've, I'm sorry, I've tasted the wine. I can't drive tonight. And, and so have you ever been around people who have tasted the wine a little bit too much? Their decision making's a tad bit impaired. Okay. And, and they start to think that really dumb ideas are really good ideas. Well, Belshazzar takes the cake on that one. Look at verse two. When he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So when Nebuchadnezzar had, had, had ransacked Jerusalem originally, when the Lord had, had literally given it into his hand, um, he had taken these things out of the Lord's house. Um, and Belshazzar thought, you know what? This is a great party. And, but you know, the people that I've invited here, red solo cups, aren't enough for, so we are gonna go get the nicest gold, the nicest silver out, and we're gonna drink from it. And they did, and they disrespected it. But the problem is, that gold and that silver belong to the Lord, and they were used for the Lord, and they were used for holy things. So he disrespected the Lord. And so they, they even, even using these things, they were singing praises to their false gods. Doesn't end well for him. Look at verse 5. Immediately. The fingers of a hand, a human hand, appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. So the, the fingers of a human hand appear. I, I don't know what color they were. I don't know what size they were. Were they like a regular hand? Were they like one of the foam finger hands that you get at a, we're number one? I, I have no idea, but obviously he saw it and it was scary. Look at verse six. The king's color changed. And his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. So the king's been drunk. He's been having a good time. He sobered up real quick, real, real quick. I highly recommend it. If you ever need to sober up real quick, try the whole God writing on the wall type thing, okay? Way better than coffee, and he's scared. You've ever been that scared? His knees are knocking together. I didn't know that happened outside of Looney Tunes, but apparently he's so scared his knees are knocking together. He's terrified and why? I think he's terrified because have you ever have you ever been caught And you're even extra scared because you knew you were going to get caught eventually. You knew you weren't doing the right thing and you're just kind of waiting for that shoe to fall. And when that other shoe fell, bam, you're just terrified. And I think that's what's happening here. And look at verse 7. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers. So in the middle of the party, he's just screaming. He's screaming, bring me all of my wise men. Bring me all of my advisors and the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing shows me his interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. So his advisors probably, they were at the party. They probably got, had a little bit too much to drink as well. They weren't much help to him. And they couldn't tell him what these words meant. So the king was despairing. But then in verse 10, the queen shows up. And the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. And the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There's a man in your kingdom in whom the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called and he'll show you the interpretation. So the queen remembers Daniel, maybe this is Nebuchadnezzar's wife even, maybe this is like the queen mother, she remembers Daniel, she remembers what God's done through Daniel and so she says, you need to go get this Daniel guy. So verse 13, Daniel is brought before the king and the king says to Daniel, you're that Daniel. One of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah, I've heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that the light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they couldn't show, me, uh, show the interpretation of the matter. But I've heard that you can give the interpretation and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in all the kingdom. Look at Daniel's response. Let your gifts be for yourself. Give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Daniel says, I don't want your gifts. At this point, he's probably in his 80s. He's been there. He's done that. He's got enough gold for it. Okay? He says, "I, I don't want it. I don't want that. But I'll tell you the interpretation. So look at verse 18. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would he killed, and whom he would he kept alive. Whom he would he raised up, and whom he would he humbled. But. So, so God literally he makes Nebuchadnezzar lose his mind until he recognizes and live like a wild animal until he recognizes that God is in charge. You remember that? Of course you remember that. How could you forget something like that? Look at the next verse in 22. Belshazzar forgot, and you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. Belshazzar might have been there. Belshazzar might have been there walking around the palace when no one knew where Nebuchadnezzar was. Belshazzar might have been there when they found him, and he showed up, and his hair is as long as, what does it say? Eagle's feathers, and his his fingernails are like claws. He comes in looking like a crazy swamp thing person. He might have been there, and he says, you knew about this, and you still didn't humble yourself. Look at verse 23. But you've lifted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you praise the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which don't see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose, all, whose are all your ways you've not honored. In your pride, you've lifted yourself up against God. You treated him as common, and you treated his his belongings as common, and there's a a higher purpose there. You praised the false gods and ignored the one who's given you everything. Look at verse 24. Then from his presence the hand was sent and the writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Many, many, tekel parson. And this is the interpretation of the matter. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Uh, Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. God's number of your days. He's brought your kingdom to an end. He's judged you. He's brought judgment here. Now you've been judged in the fulfillment of Daniel chapter two. You remember the dream of the of the statue, the golden head Nebuchadnezzar would fall, his kingdom would fall and be given to the 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 chests of silver. You remember that. Here we have it right here. The Medes and the Persians. It's coming true. So in verse 29, Belshazzar gives a command and rewards Daniel and he's got to do it quick because what happens in verse 30, that night, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. You know, Babylon was such a powerful place. We have a lot of extra biblical historical records that tell us about Babylon. So at the same time that they're having this party and Belshazzar is just partying it up, just celebrating how great he is, God's in control. And that was the end of it. And so the Persian army had found a way to divert the Euphrates River. The Euphrates River ran through Babylon, literally went right under the walls of Babylon. So they found a way to, to, to uh, uh, divert that river and they literally walked under the walls of the city on that riverbed. And so while they're partying and all these people are getting drunk and having a good time, there's an army underneath them. And so Daniel reads this interpretation, gives the interpretation to the king, and at some point in that night, Daniel's probably still standing there. We see an army bust through that party and kill Belshazzar where he stands. God is absolutely in control. As we as we talk about this message, as we talk about the writing on the wall, I want to start there. I just want to say that you know what? You know what that writing on the wall means to us today? God's in control. Look at that, that king, he was celebrating his power. Babylon was massive. There, there hadn't been a kingdom like this before and arguably not one like it since. And so there's this incredible kingdom he has. He's got thousands of people together partying. They're having a good time. There is nothing that he wants that can't be given to him. And yet at the same time, God says, your, your power isn't enough for me. Your, your pride, it's, it's not too big for me. Your, everything that, that you're taking, you're, you're taking pride in, everything that you, uh, you are relying your entire life on, it's nothing in front of me. And that's the God that's for us. He is on the throne and nothing changes that. No kingdom, no Babylon, no army, nothing. No terrorist attack, no illness, no cancer, no death, no hatred, no racism, no fear, nothing takes him off of his throne. Nothing. Isaiah forty-one ten. I love this verse. God says, don't be afraid for I'm with you. Don't be discouraged for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I'll hold you up with my victorious right hand. Don't forget that the power that reduces kingdoms to nothing is the power of God that is for you. He's for you. That's good news. But you know, that's, I don't think that's the main message that that I took away from this and I think the Lord wants us to talk about today. I think the the main point of that message, that writing on the wall to us is this. Don't test God. Don't test God. And don't test God in what way? Because if you're familiar with the scriptures and maybe you've, you've read Malachi before, if you read Malachi, God lays down a gauntlet to test him, doesn't he? Malachi 3.10, it says, bring all the tithes into the storehouses so there'll be enough food in my temple. And if you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I'll open up the windows of heaven for you. I'll pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it, put me to the test. So is that what he's saying? He's, he's saying here to test him in what way? Be obedient and see if I reward you like I say. Be obedient and see the rewards that I will bring your way. God welcomes your test when it comes to his promises and obedience. And any parent does that, right? Think about it. Uh, we, we've got four kids, and so uh, unfortunately they didn't come out potty trained, and so as you try to potty train them, you try to find incentives to get them, uh, to use the potty, and I remember going to a toy store with my son, and I was so just, I was just done with it. I was tired of changing poopy diapers, and I was like, whatever it will take, and I said, son, pick out anything in this store right now. I don't care what It costs. And so he looks around or whatever and he finds this giant play set that is the size of eight toddlers and it's just this massive play set. And I said, son, I want you to know that if you start using the potty, we will come right back here and we will buy that thing. Daddy will sell his car and we will buy this toy, okay? It's going to happen for you. I wanted him to test me on that. I wanted him to test the reward. Be obedient to me and see how I'll reward you. It'll blow your mind. Test me on that. And that's what, that's the testing God actually asks of us. However, what kind of test am I referring to here? Well, look at the passage. How did Belshazzar test the Lord? Did he test God's reward through obedience? No. He tested God with willful sin. He tested the patience of the Lord and the Lord's justice. Will the Lord really act against sin? You might say, what do you mean he tested? He just made a mistake. He just made a mistake. He brought in the, the wrong cups. I mean, anybody can do that. You can open the cabinet, and bring in the wrong cups. That's, he just made a mistake. Look at verse 22. And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. He knew who the God of heaven was. He knew the power of God. And yet, he willfully disobeyed. He willfully stood against what God wanted. He knows better. He knew what was appropriate. He knew the line because he knew what happened with Nebuchadnezzar. He knew where pride would lead you with this God. He knew it. He knew the power of God, but he pushed and he tested and he tested. And God does what he always does. He deals with sin. He deals with sin because he, he, he has to. Because one, God hates sin. In Psalm 5, 4, it says, for you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells within you. He hates it because it's offensive to him. He is holy. We see in Habakkuk 1, 13, your eyes, talking about God, are too pure to approve evil. And you you cannot look on wickedness with favor. He hates sin. So he deals with sin because he's just. And he hates it not only because it offends him, but he hates it because it offends us too. It hurts us. Think about when we're disobedient to God's wisdom, who ends up paying the price? We do, and the people around us do. It, we get hurt when we ignore the wisdom of God. And I heard someone say one time, God hates sin as much as a father hates a rattlesnake that's threatening his children. And I think it's true. God deals with sin because he loves us. He hates sin because, and, and he loves us. And God deals with sin because he's just. And it has to be dealt with. Deuteronomy 32:4. the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. God doesn't ignore sin because he's just. He deals with it. The injustice of sin must be dealt with. Otherwise, there is no justice. And God always deals with sin. He never just lets it go. And let's be honest. Sometimes we think, I don't know if that's true. It doesn't, that's not my experience. It doesn't feel that way. Like, the biggest jerk I work with just got the promotion, not me. You know, the, the person in your family who doesn't give a rip about God seems to have the biggest house and the best job. The sin, it seems to, in our culture, get rewarded. Violent people go without being brought to justice. The person who wronged you seems to not lose a, a wink of sleep, but you haven't slept well in months, it doesn't seem like God always deals with justice. You know, in Psalm 73, Asaph thought the exact same thing. And look, look at what he says. These fat cats have everything. Their hearts could ever wish for it. They scoff and speak only evil in their pride. They seek to crush others. They boast against the very heavens and their words strut throughout the earth. And so the people are dismayed and confused, drinking in all their words. What does God know? asked "Does the Most high even know what's happening? Look at these wicked people enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. But then look at verse 16. So I tried to understand why the wicked prosper, but what a difficult task it is. Then I went into your sanctuary, O oh God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. Truly. You put them on a slippery path and send them sliding over the cliff to destruction. In an instant, they're destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. When you arise, O Lord, you will laugh at their silly ideas as a person laughs at dreams in the morning. Those who desert him will perish for you destroy those who abandon you. But as for me, how good it is to be near God. I've made the sovereign Lord my shelter and I will tell everyone about the wonderful things you do. The Lord deals with their sin. Their prosperity, it's nothing. Maybe it's an illusion. For sure, it's temporary. For sure, there is no depth there. The Lord deals with their sin. So so the message today is, is simple. Don't test God. And when I'm talking about not testing God, don't test God with willful disobedience, with willful sin. You know what? With that message, there's also a warning behind it. And that warning is different depending on the audience, depending on who's hearing it. And isn't that true? Sometimes there's a message that might change the meaning depending on who's hearing it. A friend of mine works um, with a company, He works from home, but he works on the phone. And most of his clients are from the north. Anybody here from the north? Welcome. I'm glad you, you made it, refugees. You're safe here now. But he talks on the, on the phone all day with, with clients in the north. And um, he recently had to comp- he had to go to sensitivity training and I asked him why. And he said, well, out of all of his calls he makes, 47% of people who took the call took the survey after the call to give feedback. Who does that? If you're one of those people, what are you doing? Don't you have stuff to do? But anyway, they stayed on the line and they took the survey. 47%. 84% of the people who were were taking the survey, who took the survey, 84% of those people complained and were offended because he called them ma'am or sir." What's up with the North people? What is going on, okay? And so apparently, he had to go to sensitivity training. And what they told him was, where you are from in your culture, in your context, it is polite to say ma'am or sir. But up north, most people find it offensive because they think you're calling them old. They think that you're disrespecting them. And so he had a complete sensitivity training, and it blew my mind, and even more, my, my prayer even got stronger, Lord, please don't call me to the north. But, but I, I, the point is, the message changes sometimes based on who's listening. And this message of, of don't test God, it's true for us as well, don't test God. But the warning's a little bit different for those who believe. It says don't test God because he will deal with your sin through discipline. He'll deal with your sin through discipline. And you know there's good news in that. Because I didn't say he'll deal with your sin through punishment. He'll deal with your sin through discipline. There's a difference between discipline and punishment, isn't there? The definition of punishment, the infliction or imposition of a penalty as a retribution for an offense. It's getting what you deserve, what you deserve. It's about paying back a debt. Period. That's punishment. Paying back a debt. But discipline's different. It's train It's training to obey rules or a code of behavior using punishment to correct disobedience. Gracious punishment with a purpose. It's about correcting and training. Do you see the difference? Punishment is about retribution for an offense. Discipline focuses on what? It focuses on correction. So the focus of punishment is on the past misdeed. This wrong happened. You have to pay the price. Discipline is not that. Discipline is focused on the future correct acts. I want in the future for you not to make this mistake again. I want you to be better. And that's the difference. And that's how God deals with us. It's not just pure punishment. It's through discipline. Think about it. Punishment is focused on satisfying wrath. But discipline is not. And God's wrath for us is satisfied on the cross. There isn't isn't leftover wrath for followers of Jesus that God's just gonna chunk at you every now and then. It's satisfied. So it's not about the punishment, it's about the discipline. Ephesians 2, three through five says, among whom all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, okay? So we were objects and children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved. So no longer is it about satisfying that wrath. It's satisfied. It's about discipline. It's about making us better. Does that mean we shouldn't take the Lord's discipline seriously? Of course not. No, absolutely take it seriously. Have you ever been disciplined? Punishment is a part of it. That's a part of it. It's uncomfortable. It's embarrassing. It can be painful. Don't, yeah, yeah, absolutely take discipline seriously. We talked last week about humbling yourself. We talked about when I don't humble myself, a lot of times, you know what the Lord does? He goes, okay, and you know the way he disciplines me? He goes, go right ahead. You know, when I think that I've got all the answers and I'm just, I'm just all proud, the Lord's like, okay, I'll humble you, continue, just fall on your face, just make an idiot of yourself. And that's one way that, that I'm disciplined. I don't like that, I don't like being embarrassed. I don't like making a fool out of myself. So discipline isn't, although it's to learn and to correct future behavior, It isn't fun, and we shouldn't take it lightly, not at all. Another reason we shouldn't take the Lord's discipline lightly, let me give you a recent example. My oldest um, was having a a rough day, and we were in the car, and um, he was in the back seat, and he, he had his cup, and he just chunked it. He just chunked it through the van. And so it hits the back of my seat, and I said, okay, um, we were going to go home, and, and like all parents at this time of the year, we're trying to get them to eat the candy in some, some sort of, we don't want them to eat it all at once type thing. Like, so, so every day when they come home, you can just get a little bit of candy. So we're on our way home. They're all looking forward. They're about to get their candy fix, you know. And so we're, we're on our way, and I said, okay, Max, no candy. You know better. You can't do that. So when we get home, No candy. So he's frustrated. So he's in the back seat, and he's screaming and losing his mind. And that's at the point where I'm just so thankful for just how loud my stereo is. And I'm just like, that's fine, let's just, let's just, sweet Caroline, keep going, it's fine, don't worry about it. So we turn the radio up, well, he's still screaming. And so Angela, my wife tries to talk to him, tries to calm him down. And so he yells back at his mother, you know, yells, no, back at his mother. Before, candy, you threw your cup, you're upset, no candy, no big deal, but you yelled at your mother, so now it's time to pull out the nuclear option. You you care about candy a little bit, but now I'm taking away something very near and dear to you. Food? No, he wouldn't care about that. Nap? No, he wouldn't care about that. Bath? Don't worry about it. PlayStation? Absolutely, all right? So I said, son, when you get home, we're not going to turn the PlayStation off. I gutted that boy. That was it right there. That was, uh, Daddy, Daddy, no. Like, it got real, it got real serious, real quick. And, and why, why did I do that? Because the severity of the discipline depends on severity of the lesson that needs to be learned. Isn't that true? And so the more we are flippant with God's grace in our life, the harder lesson we will have to learn. I don't want to be disciplined. I don't want to learn the hard lesson. And so again, the severity of the discipline depends on the offense and the severity of your stubbornness to learn. And he knows how severe a lesson we need to learn. And because he loves us, he will take whatever step it is to help us learn that lesson. What did it take for Nebuchadnezzar? To lose his mind. To live outside like an animal for years. But why did he do it? I think the Lord loved Nebuchadnezzar. That's why he did it, and he had to humble him so that he could change him, and I don't want to test him. So why do we test him? Again, testing him is that willful sin, not ignorance, that willful defiance. Why do we do it? I think we do it maybe because we think he's safe, like he's like a, like a teddy bear, you know, God's my buddy. I heard someone tell a story recently, a friend of mine, his, uh, he went to the zoo with a friend of his who goes to the zoo every day. He's not a zoologist, just a weirdo who loves the zoo. He goes to the zoo every single day, And there's a lion there, not the Memphis Zoo, it's a different zoo. There's a lion there named Leo. And he goes and sees Leo every single day. So they walk up to the the cage and he starts saying, Leo, Leo, where are you? And this giant animal, this massive beast is about 50 yards away and he gets down on all his haunches like a kitten and puts his tail in the air and starts moving. And the guy goes, Leo, where are you? come get me. And as soon as he says that, that lion just takes off in a full sprint and jumps at the cage. He's so happy to see this man, just ready to, to play like that. He loves that lion. But you know, he said, you know something I'll never do? I love that lion. You know what I'll never do? I'm never going to reach my hand in there and touch his mane. I'm never going to reach my hand in there and, and, and pull on his hair. I'll never do that. He's powerful. He's incredibly Powerful. I love him, and he has an affection for me, but he's to be respected and feared. And I think God isn't a teddy bear. He's so loving, He's so gracious, He's so kind, but our God is a lion. I love that that in the C.S. Lewis book, "The Lion, the Witch and the, the Wardrobe," there's a scene um, where, where there, Susan is, is going to meet Aslan, the, who represents God, the lion. And she says, "Aslan's a lion. The lion, the great lion." Oh. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And then Mr. Beaver, who she's talking to, responds. He says, safe. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And it's the same thing with our God. His discipline can be terrible because his power is great. Don't disrespect that. And, and we don't think about the Lord's discipline a lot too. I, I think I think we say, you know what, I know this isn't right, but I, I, I'm not really thinking about that the Lord will discipline me. I, I'm not, that's not even going through my brain. It's like the time I told you we, we took the students to Destin and we went to Florida and this kid was terrified of sharks and we're standing out in the ocean and a shark literally, I've been telling him the whole week, I've never seen a shark in my life. A shark literally goes by our feet and I don't say anything to him and we're just standing there and then I'm like, all right, man, hey, why don't we go in and like throw the Frisbee or whatever? He Had no idea the shark was there. Does that change the amount of danger he was in? No. The shark was in the water. Regardless if he thought about it or not, the shark was in the water in the same way. Regardless if you think about it or not, God's discipline is still in the water of disobedience. It's still there, whether we think about it or not. And I think one of the other reasons we test him is we don't think our sins that offensive. But can I tell you something as a parent? I don't, it's completely irrelevant if my children think an offense is, a, is an offense or not. It's completely irrelevant if they think it's a big deal or not because they don't know any better because they're children. And I'm their dad. I know better. I know what's good. And so I'm going to teach them that. So I, it doesn't matter if, if, if for, for us saying that to God, you know, it's not that big a deal. It doesn't ma- It's irrelevant. It's irrelevant what we think. The Lord knows what's good. The Lord knows um, what's offensive. And so he'll teach us. He'll teach us. And you know, uh, sometimes we, we test God because we think there's nothing we can do about it. Can I, can I tell you some good news? You aren't slaves to sin any longer. Romans 6, 6 tells us that. And when I correct my kids and I discipline my kids, you know what I say to them? I don't like doing this. And we don't ever have to do this again. If you'll just obey, we don't ever have to do this again. You know? And God says the same thing to us. And he's enabled us to obey him. He's enabled us to not be disciplined. He gives us his word. Second Timothy 3.16, all scriptures inspired by God. It's useful to teach us what's true and make us realize what's wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong. It teaches us what to do is right. It reveals us the truth about what pleases the Lord. We have his wisdom in his word. We, we have his wisdom, we can obey. We have the helper, John 14, 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. He reminds us of the truth and enables us to obey. We have confession and prayer with one another to help us. James 5, 16, confess your sins to each other. Pray for one another so you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. We can obey the Lord. We don't have to be slaves to our sin any longer. We don't have to test the Lord. We can be obedient. And remember I said that the warning behind the message is different depending on the audience. I wanna close with this thought. The other people in this room that might be hearing something a little bit differently are those that don't follow Jesus. You know what I mean. Like you come to church or whatever, but, but he's not driving your life. He's not in the driver's seat. He's not in that number one spot. You're not following Jesus. The message is the same. Don't test God. But the warning is different for you. Here's the warning. Because he'll deal with your sin through punishment. God will judge your sin and your sin will be punished. Belshazzar was judged and punished. Not disciplined, but punished. The debt had to be paid. So he paid it with his life. He's dead. Your sin will be punished and you'll be condemned. One day you will stand before a holy God holding on to your sin. And you'll have to answer to him for that. And you will pay the debt. And you'll face death for eternity, separated from him. But you know, the good news is, this right here, up here on the screen, this is a warning. It's not a verdict. When you get a verdict, there's nothing you can do about a verdict. It's done. Over. Right? That that happened. This is a warning. You can heed a warning. You can do something about a warning. And so let, let me tell you what you can do. Romans 10.9 says this. Let's, let's look at it. Romans 10.9. If we confess your sin, with, if you confess your, with your mouth, excuse me, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confession, what is that? Admitting, of, admitting your guilt, admitting your sin, admitting your need for Jesus and believe in your heart. What does that mean? Well, heart, it literally is talking about your mind, your, your will, your, even your decision making. In other words, believing with your life, putting him in that number one spot, putting him in the driver's seat following him with the way that you live. That can be you today. We're about to take communion in a minute. I want us to bow our head and, and close our eyes. I want to deal with this right now because Nebuchadnezzar was, um, was unfaithful to the Lord and displeased the Lord for a long, long, long time. And the Lord gave him plenty of opportunities, plenty of time it looked like to repent. And Nebuchadnezzar did. God didn't kill Nebuchadnezzar. He gave him an opportunity. Belshazzar, the Lord looked at his heart. He looked at how he tested the Lord. And he said, that's enough. And that was it for Belshazzar. The same could be true for you. Enough's enough. If you aren't following the Lord, enough's enough. I have no idea if the Lord will be patient with you for one more day. I have no idea. But take the warning that God gave us through this, through this incident with Belshazzar. If you aren't following the Lord Jesus, you're separated from him by your sin, and it will be judged, and you will be separated from him for eternity. You don't have to be. If you're hearing my words, you don't have to be. So if that's you this morning, talk to God. Surrender your life to God. Pray this prayer to him. You don't have to do it out loud. You can do it in the quietness of your, of your mind. Just say this to God. God, I'm sorry. I confess I am a sinner. I have messed up. I've offended you with the way that I've lived my life. I am sorry. Please forgive me. I believe that you died on the cross for me. I believe that you rose from the dead. And now I believe that you're giving me a new life. And I'm going to follow you. God, change me. Give me a fresh start. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.